Isn't it exciting to know that there is a generation that follows some of us in this room that still loves to sing the old hymns and to be able to praise God in the name of Jesus Christ? We are beginning a new series just for the month of August, and we're calling it United. We're united around certain things like communion, like baptism, and like the Word of God. And so that's what you're going to be hearing through the month of August. There's an outline, a handy, convenient outline that is tucked away in that little bulletin you hopefully received when you walked in, and it's a great tool to help follow along what we're going to be talking about. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but this morning may be one of the most risky experiences of your church attendance life. And if you're here for the first time, we're grateful to have you here. But one of the things that's interesting to me as you look in the history of the church is that there were two episodes where God brought about His expression of, uh, let's call it, discipline upon people who did not operate fully according to the way He designed us to operate. And those two areas that He brought about a course of discipline as a lesson for us to learn from happens to be around the offering and around communion. If you know the history of the church, the church began in Acts chapter 2, and there God instituted the church that had never before been known as an entity. And that was the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2. Before that, there was no church, not as we understand the word ecclesia, the church today. But in Acts chapter 5, just three simple chapters later, there was a family that brought their offerings to the Lord, and they did it in an improper way, and they were instantly dead. That's risky behavior. And then there is this practice that we are going to look at this morning, and it's called communion. And in 1 Corinthians 11, where we'll go in just a moment, there a group of people would gather together around this feast of the communion. They would do it in an improper, improper or unworthy manner. And there were some who were sick and some who died because it was not practiced properly. Now, that was the first century church. I've not seen God do that yet in this time that we've been here together, but it really reflects God's heart, that there are certain things that we will do every week or maybe once a month, like communion. They can become perfunctory. They can become sort of natural. They can become routine or rote. And God has ways to sort of wake us up that this is something highly significant. So we're going to explore all this morning the topic of communion and what it means. In fact, think of yourselves as if you're sitting around at a feast or a table and you're celebrating together as a Jewish person. You'd be sitting at the table, and there you would have your Passover feast. You would have the meal. Some of you have been to the Passover Seder that Matt Davis that was just here will conduct each December, and we encourage you to check that out when that rolls around here this coming year. But you would sit around the Passover feast, and you would celebrate, and for the Jewish mindset, you would celebrate the redemption out of the nation of Egypt. And then in Exodus chapter 12, God then gave them instructions to remember what I've done for you in releasing you from the bondage 
and the sins of Egypt. So they would sit, and this is the preparation of the meal. The meal would be there, and there are many symbols in it that we don't have time to go into. But then there are those who capture that moment when the Passover feast became the time when Jesus celebrated with His disciples. And when Jesus instituted the communion that we know today, they were actually doing it at the Passover season. You'll read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 2, that the Passover was beginning. And it was at the Passover that Jesus then celebrated what we now today call communion. So our communion today has deep roots that go all the way back to the days of Egypt. And then Jesus takes that Passover feast and He begins to reconstitute it, to redesign it, to give it new meaning, new value. And so let's explore that together. For this communion that we're about to receive here in just a moment, we need to understand Jesus' teaching on communion. Jesus changed the focus of that Passover feast so that it moved away from Egypt and the redemption from the bondage of Pharaoh to now focus on the redemption that Jesus Himself is going to provide for His disciples when they gather together in that upper room in John in the latter days of Christ, just days before His own death and His crucifixion. He celebrated the Passover feast, and it says, Men, I'm changing what the Passover feast has always been. And so we read in Matthew 26 where Jesus was teaching them at the Passover feast, at what we call our first communion, at the Last Supper, while they were eating the Passover feast, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Now, if you're a Jewish follower, as these men were that he had gathered together his 12 disciples, this is stunning to them. What do you mean, this bread? This bread that they would have that would be gathered together before them, this matzah bread, this unleavened bread, he says, this bread is my body. They've never heard that before because up to this time, they would celebrate that Passover feast and this bread would symbolize the freedom that they were gaining through the loss of the Egyptian bondage. And it was unleavened because they want to leave behind the leaven of the sinful practices of Egypt. And because in haste they would have to remove themselves, they wouldn't have chance for the leaven to leaven the whole lump of bread. So prepare yourselves for a quick departure. That would have been more of what they would have heard. So then Jesus says, no, this is, this is my body. That's new information to his disciples. And when he had taken a cup, he had given thanks, he gave to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives to review. When Jesus gathered together just days or hours before his own crucifixion, They were celebrating the Passover season. They were into the feast. It was something these men would have done every year. This is not a new thing for them. This is not the first time they would gather together to do the Passover feast. But Jesus says, I'm going to change what the Passover feast is all about. 
I'm going to give new definitions to the elements of this meal. And so Jesus took that bread and he blessed it and he said, now this bread symbolizes my body, not redemption from Egypt. And their minds must have spun. What? How is that possible? Ever since I grew up as a kid, we celebrated the Passover, but we've never thought of the Messiah's body as being this bread. That's new information. And then Exodus chapter 12 says, You shall also observe the feast of the unleavened bread, and for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. That's what they would have understood. And we get the idea of matzah, because in the Hebrew the unleavened word means is matzah. So we call it matzah bread. And this is the bread that we will use for our communion. And you can see that there are stripes on the matzah bread, much as there are stripes by his wounds. Isaiah 53, we are healed. So Jesus then gives them a new definition of what that bread is. It's all about his body, not Egypt. Secondly, he took the cup and he gave thanks. And we call, sometimes they call communion the Eucharist. Well, the word Eucharist is the Greek word for thanks. So he gave thanks, or this is the Eucharist, giving thanks to God for what he's done, and he declared it a new covenant of our forgiveness in his blood rather than the old covenant of the repeated sacrifices. So Jesus is giving them more new information. He says, wait a second, this cup has always symbolized the blood of the lamb that we would sacrifice at the Passover feast, much as Jesus, much as God had ordained and taught them, take the lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorpost of your house so the angel of death, when he kills the firstborn of the Egyptians, he will pass over your home because you've applied the blood on the doorpost of your house. He says that, that's what we would typically think of as the blood, not the Messiah's blood or Jesus' blood. So this is new information to them. And so he would take the cup. Paul talks about that cup. In 1 Corinthians 10, I speak as to wise men, you judge at what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Now, what Jesus did in those days is he took one cup, and it is what is called the third cup or the cup of blessing, as Paul calls it. In the original Passover feast, there were four cups that were consumed. The Mishnah, which is the written-down oral traditions of the Passover, they outline what these four cups are. This is not in Scripture. This is not ordained by God in Exodus. This is something that the rabbi and their traditions had instituted as part of the Passover feast. So there were four cups. There was the cup of sanctification, the cup of wrath, the plagues, and then there was the cup of blessing or salvation. The third cup, the cup of blessing that Paul calls it, is the cup that is consumed after the feast. So Jesus has finally completed the eating of the feast, and then he takes that third cup that they would have always been practicing as good Jewish men, and he says, now I'm going to apply what this wine means to a new definition, and it is all about my blood. And what they would do there at the Passover feast is they would have one cup and they would pass it down 
to the 12 men. They would all drink from the one cup. If we wanted to truly be a biblical church, we would have one cup, and it would go right down one row after the other row, and finally the people in the back, you get the reward of everyone else's drinking. I was uh, actually preaching in Moscow a number of years ago. Joy and I were over there visiting uh, Carol Sherman, who was one of our missionaries, and I preached at this church in Moscow. And they served communion at that service. And in point of fact, they had one cup. And it started from the back and went back and forth and back and forth. And it finally came to me. And I took that cup. I say, Lord, protect me. And I drank from it. That's why we don't use one cup because I'm thinking about everybody else's germs. I'm not thinking about Jesus' blood. But in those days, that's what they would do. So it was the third cup of blessing that they had. In fact, some rabbis talk about a fifth cup, the cup of Elijah. Because in the Jewish system, they're looking for the return to the land and for the, the reclamation of all that they have been that they want before God. And so they have the cup of Elijah. And isn't it interesting how so much in Judaism are symbols of what we believe because there will be a third, fifth cup, if you will, and with that cup, we will celebrate this time with Jesus in his new kingdom. So we're looking for the third, fifth cup. The fifth cup was never drunk. It is just remaining there. So we should all have a fifth cup that we put it aside and say when Jesus comes back, we're going to drink with him. And so this is the background. And so Jesus says this is a special cup. It's in Luke, he says, in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten. See, after they had eaten, the cup of blessing follows the meal. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is a new covenant that they'd never heard about before. They're used to the old covenant of Moses. We'll show you in a moment. Here is the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied amongst others. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. In contrast to that moment, my covenant which they broke Although I was a husband to them, he loves this marriage analogy of his relationship with Israel, much as we see Jesus as our groom in the marriage analogy as well. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them on their heart. I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That is a new covenant that has not fully been fulfilled yet. There will come a day when the land of Israel will become a kingdom where Jesus is the Messiah will rule on earth. Then that new covenant will finally be established in fullness. You and I, most of us are Gentiles here probably, we are beneficiaries in a sort of subtle way of this new covenant because this law is now written on our hearts. The Holy Spirit is within us. He is our God. We are His people. But someday this new covenant of Jeremiah will be fulfilled in the nation of Israel as a future kingdom that Jesus will establish on earth. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about the old covenant. 
For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. The old covenant, as good as it was, was an act of worship before God in a time of atonement, of covering of their sins, and a drawing before the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that old covenant could never completely perfect those who draw near. So Jesus said, at the Passover feast, I have gathered you men together, and I'm changing the definition. This bread, no longer about Egypt, now it's about my body. This cup, this cup of blessing, this third cup of your Passover feast, no longer about the blood of the lamb that got you angels passing over your house so the angel of death did not take your firstborn. No longer is it about that. Now it's about my blood. I am the new lamb. This is my new covenant. Things are changing with me. I'm making all things new, and I'm establishing a new order from God. And so now this communion, this bread, this cup, this is for everyone because it's all about Jesus, not about Israel's history so much anymore. So God's given us this new way of thinking about things. As we receive the elements in just a moment, these elements, remember, are rooted to all the way back to the days that Israel was redeemed from Egypt but refined and reconstituted and reorganized and redefined so that you and I can focus on Jesus. Now, some people ask, how do I know when I'm ready to take communion? How do I know when my children are old enough to take communion? And who is allowed to take communion? Should only members, non-members, who should take communion? Let me show you what I believe Scripture teaches about that and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul gives to us pretty precise and clear instructions as to what this ordinance of communion is all about. He begins by telling us that we must correct errors as we prepare ourselves for this moment. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34 are those instructions. And part of the problem that the people in the Corinthian church had as many of them were probably Gentiles, there were probably some Jews there as well. They had this practice of gathering together around the feast. This is a time of a meal. Churches did not have big buildings like this. They didn't have parking lots. They didn't have to worry about uh, uh, all kinds of things that we worry about today. They would gather in a home. They would have a meal. People would bring their Maybe their Passover feast elements that they are still accustomed to, or perhaps the Gentiles would bring their own form of food. But they would gather together about this love feast, this love fest, and they would discriminate against anybody that they didn't like, often between the rich and the poor. And so in communion, it's an opportunity to reexamine ourselves to make sure we are not practicing sinful divisions and this selfishness and this pride around the communion meal. The Apostle Paul wrote about that, and he says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. He says, we've got a problem with what you're doing. 
because you come together not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it because they were a divisive church. They were a carnal church. They were an immature church. They had a lot of gifts, but they had low maturity. They would love to exercise what they thought were good skills, get the applause of people who were impressed, but they were full of division and selfishness and pride. And that's why a church built around high gifts is often a church built around pride and selfishness. Paul says, I don't praise you for that. I rebuke you for it. He goes on to say, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, another is drunk. You see, they had done what we don't want to have happen. In the routine, in the rote, in in this practice, they had lost the essence of what communion is. It was just sort of a rote behavior, and some were drunk, and some were put away because they didn't have enough food or enough money. But nobody else cared. And Paul gives us the instruction. He says, I don't want you to come and sort of lose the sense of what this moment is all about. And later at the end of the chapter, he talks about the fact that for this reason, many among you are weak, sick, and a number sleep. So it's serious stuff, this communion. There's another thing that we need to point out, but not belabor. There are errant views on communion. And one is transubstantiation. Now, I recognize that a number of you have come out of the Roman Catholic Church, and we respect that, and we respect the sacredness with which the Catholic Church practices communion. It's a sacred moment in the church. The viewpoint is that this bread and this cup literally changes into the body and the blood of Jesus, trans meaning changed into. Well, we don't believe that when Jesus said, this is my body, he literally meant every time you take this bread, it literally turns into his body, becomes a form of constant sacrifice. Much like Jesus said, you are the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth, he uses metaphors and symbols to help illustrate what he teaches. We believe it's symbolic that it is his body. Martin Luther came along, and he was a Roman Catholic priest, and he became disenchanted with the Roman Catholic Church, and he did a lot of things that were contrary to the Catholic Church, one of which he then instituted a new definition of communion. He called it, it would be called consubstantiation, the word con meaning with. So the bread and the cup doesn't change into the body and blood of Jesus. For Martin Luther, the person of Christ is with, in, and under. He is spiritually present around those elements unlike any other elements that you may have. And so that was a break from the Roman Catholic Church. So the Lutheran Church has that practice. We don't believe that here. We believe it's a memorial. It's a memorial in the sense that you need to think about three things. And so how do you know if you're ready to take communion? Well, you focus on three areas. And as the bread and the cup will be passed, I encourage you to focus on these three areas. Number one, the union we have with Jesus. 
And 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He wants us to remember him. One of the reasons, and not that we need it, but we uh, who are married, we wear wedding rings. Now, I don't need a wedding ring to remember that I'm married to Joy. Okay? You understand me there? It's not like, uh, if I don't wear my wedding ring, am I married? Is Joy still my wife? No, that's not a problem. We just celebrated 42 years together just the other day. So I still remember these things. So we remember that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that so you would clap, but I wondered if you would. <laughs> so we have these things, like wedding rings and other things, that are symbols to remind us who we are and what we believe. We remember Jesus through the bread and the cup. We constantly remember, oh, that's right, this is what he did. I don't need the bread and the cup to remember that Jesus is my Savior, but I take the bread and the cup to constantly you know, constantly renew the relationship and understanding of how deep and wide His love is for me. So we have communion to remember. It's a union. When and how did I ever receive Jesus as my Savior? You might review that in your mind. The moment you trusted in Jesus. In fact, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, I encourage you to do it now. So this might be the first real communion for you that says, I have a union with Jesus. I'm remembering this moment as the moment where I believed in Jesus as my Savior. Much like I met with, uh, I was part of this terrific team at VBS that Davis reminded us of just a moment ago. And a terrific team that we would walk with the children through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would ask every child that was there from the littlest to first grade all the way up to fourth grade, do you believe in Jesus? We want to be clear about the gospel. And one question you can ask to find out how well do I know of the assurance of my salvation is this. If I were to ask you, if you were to die right now and you were to stand before Almighty God in heaven and he should say to me, let's take myself as an example, Dave, why should I let you into heaven? That answer determines whether I, am assurance, I have assurance of my salvation. Why should I let you into heaven, Dave? Now, some people will say, because I've tried to be good. I went to church, keep the Ten Commandments. I'm a nice guy, as one person told me one time. And Jesus would say, no, that's not why I would let you into heaven. What I would say is because when I was 12, I sat in my mother's bedroom and she prayed with me, and I prayed this prayer. Jesus, I have sins in my life. I want to believe that Jesus will forgive me now as I confess them to him. I accept you as my Savior. Thank you for dying in my place so I could have salvation now. And Jesus would say, come on in. That's what I wanted to hear. If you've never prayed a prayer like that where I say, I'm a sinner, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, I trust in Him as the one who can forgive me of my sins, 
I trust in you now, then I wonder, is there a union with Almighty God through the person of Christ? I invite you to make that decision before we take communion in just a moment. So we look back to our union. We look forward to a reunion. He says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He gets us looking forward now. Jesus said that in Matthew 26. I just read it earlier. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of this vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So that's why we would have the fifth cup of Elijah. It is the cup that remains and waits for the moment when Jesus finally comes back and we are brought into this kingdom that he has established and we have communion with him again. So Paul says, I want you to keep doing this, proclaiming until I come back. It looks to the reunion we're going to have with Jesus. Think about this communion that we're about to receive. You know, when you have weddings, it's not just the wedding day. There's the wedding rehearsal. And the wedding rehearsal often has a meal. And the groom's family typically pays for the rehearsal meal. Well, this communion we're about to receive is like a rehearsal meal that the groom, Jesus, has paid for. And so this rehearsal of communion here should be simply a practice so that I'm ready when Jesus comes back and I take it fresh with him. Don't let it be the first time you ever take communion when you come and return with Christ to his kingdom. So this is a rehearsal meal of the coming of the Christ who is our Savior. John writes why we need to look forward. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. The anticipation that Jesus could come now keeps me pure, not out of an unhealthy fear because he's a harsh and judgmental God, but simply because I'm expecting something good and I want to please him as I live my life. It's not like driving out Santiago Canyon Road and you see a cop sitting on the side of the road, oh, I better slow down. No, it's more like I expect to see Jesus any moment and I want to be found faithful, honoring, and holiness his life. And I know that would bring great joy to him were that to occur. So look forward to a union, a reunion, and then finally a present communion with Christ. Again in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven and 28, therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There's two important words there. Unworthy and examine. For a lot of us, this is familiar territory. But the danger for some of us is that we might eat in an unworthy manner. That's why Paul says, for this reason, many among you are weak, sick, and a number sleep. That's why I began with the uh, bad news. That God sometimes helps us through discipline, to be right with him. Much as a two-year-old needs a little discipline now and then, so do I. But it's out of love. So I don't want to be eating in an unworthy manner. 
This word unworthy is actually a term that comes out of the marketplace. I've spoken of it before. In the marketplace, you would find a scale. And on one side, you would put your bartering chips. On the other side, you might put some meat or grain that you want to purchase. And in order for that price to be worthy, you need to balance the scale so that they're both the same. That's a worthy price, the clerk would say. Paul takes that term and he says, I don't want you to be unworthy. Unworthy is where sin weighs me down compared to the holiness of God. That's how I'm unworthy. Well, none of us can gain worthiness on our own effort. It's not like if we just really work really, really, really hard, I'll be much better. And finally, God will say, I'm worthy. He says, the unworthiness doesn't come through my good deeds. Even after I'm saved, I don't gain merit with God by doing good things. Galatians 3 says that. And so where does worthiness come from? Worthiness to take communion comes from Christ, from the cross. When I say, Lord, I examine myself, I examine myself to find out if there's anything in me that is sinful, in attitude, in deed, in words, Lord, examine me. Bring it to my mind because I want to go to the cross and I want to be in balance with the holiness of God. And that's what God does. He loves to take us and reshape us, much as he reshaped and redefined what bread is, no longer Egypt, now the body, no longer the lamb of Egypt, but the blood of Jesus. He wants to reshape and redefine us, that only through Christ do I become as worthy of his holiness. Peter, one of those men that was at that first Passover feast with Christ, later wrote to us about Jesus He says, for since you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return, while suffering. He uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. For you continually strain like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. So we, through the cross, no longer live to sin, but to righteousness. And so I'm going to invite us to receive this rehearsal meal that points to the body and the blood of Jesus and allows us to become worthy through our confession of sins and personal examination. So as the leaders go out to prepare the meal, Janelle's going to come up and lead us in some quiet music. And I simply want to invite you now in these next couple of minutes to examine yourselves, to come to the cross, to once again renew, redefine, reestablished, whatever it may be for you. And maybe for the very first time to believe in Jesus as your Savior. It's not some magic formula. It's not some special text. It's simply coming to Christ and say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. So I want to trust in you as my Savior because you will forgive me as I confess my sins to you. 
and you become my shepherd. As Paul, Peter calls it, my shepherd and my guardian of my soul, which is a great place to be. So let's take a few quiet moments before the elements are passed. And then I'll come up and we'll receive the bread and then the cup. So would you examine, I will examine, and be ready for this time together. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for Christ, for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is our heavenly shepherd, who came into this world to provide for us new life so that we could become worthy to have the holiness and righteousness of God through the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is a miracle because we are so unworthy in our own strength and our own efforts. So God, we come before you to remember, to remember Jesus who bore our sins on his body so that we would not live to sinfulness but to righteousness. And so I thank you for this bread as it memorializes the body of Jesus and helps us to focus on who he is and what he's done for us. Father, help us to remember well Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.
Jesus took that bread and he changed the meaning for the disciples. He changes us through his love, and we remember that. So eat in remembrance of me, Jesus said. He then took that cup of blessing, passed it amongst the disciples. And again, a reminder for the disciples, this is all brand new information. New covenant, no longer about the Lamb of Egypt, but now about the Lamb who is Jesus Christ Himself. His blood sacrificed for those disciples and for us today. That just made their heads spin. What is this new thing you're talking about? And now we are the beneficiaries of that new covenant. So remember the sacrifice of Christ, His blood for us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for being willing to go to that cross, to send your son, Father, a son that you love, your beloved son, to bear the sins of each of us on his body through that blood, cleansing us from sin to righteousness. Lord, we remember now. Renew us in that hope of forgiveness as we take these elements to remember you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
Again, as Jesus told us, this is a cup of new covenants, a new covenant. We're remembering that he has written his law into our hearts, and the Holy Spirit now dwells within us to live a life of righteousness. So remember that the blood of Christ, that new covenant, has given us that new spiritual life. And to remember that constantly, we take this symbol of the blood of Jesus and drink it together. After the men gathered together and had that Passover feast and took of that cup of blessing, they went out singing a hymn and praise to God. We're going to sing a hymn of praise to God in a moment, but before we do so, remembering even the situation with the Corinthians, where one would eat, another was without. There was the rich and the poor, and Paul says, I want you to commune together. I want you to unite together. I want you to be one together. And for those who have needs, I want you to care for them. If you're rich, don't overlook the poor. I want you to become one. So we have the practice here of receiving the emergency needs fund because we recognize that in Orange County, for a lot of folks, just getting by from paycheck to paycheck and is just not enough. And sometimes we have to come alongside and support people. And I'm telling you, we give away hundreds of thousands of dollars throughout the course of a year or more. And we are blessed to be able to give, and it's done responsibly with good stewardship. And uh, it's just not willy-nilly, but it's truly an investment in people's lives to help them somehow get out of the mess that they may be in. So thank you. As you're able to give, you're unable to give, that's fine as well. Please, if we can help you, we would love to be able to do so. It's a blessing. It's done confidentially, and we'd love to support you in any way we can. Let me receive this offering through a word of prayer and your gracious kindness. Help us, Father, as we receive this offering. Lord, we recognize that there are folks within our midst who have struggles, uh, looking for work, being able to pay the rent, unexpected medical bills. God, there's a variety of ways that uh, we have been able to help, and we're grateful. So as we receive this offering, God, guide us in wisdom to use it to glorify and honor your name and to reflect the love of Jesus. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.